Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Decision Point is back. Episode 3 with Anand Naduri. Off we go. Anand, Josh Allen just signed a mega deal. A mega deal. Six years, more than a quarter of a million dollars. Good deal for the Bills. Good deal for Josh Allen. What's your take? Hey, Matt. Good to see you again. Um, Week off kind of sucked, but we'll, we'll get right into it. So, I mean, I think... Josh Allen's contract is good for him. It's good for the city of Buffalo. It's good for the Bills. I think um, when you talk about the GM side of this, right, Brandon Bean has been building to this moment for a hot minute. Ever since he traded Sammy Watkins. Right. And I mean, even as as long as he's had this job, he's been building for this moment. What were they doing getting rid of Sammy Watkins? I was crazy. <laughs> Turns out it was... Genius. When you commit that heavily to a guy, I think you're forced to pay him, right? Logically speaking, you you lo- you would love to be able to pay your quarterback. You want to pay your quarterback, right? Ideally, you draft a guy, he's the guy, you pay him, right? But it was a giveaway that he knew what he was doing when he didn't fall for the sunk cost fallacy on Sammy Watkins. Absolutely. And I think that's what, what makes them one of the better front offices in the league is when you talk about how they approach things, right? They didn't say, oh, we got burned with a wide receiver first-round pick in Sammy Watkins. I think they learned from their mistakes and said, hey, maybe we're not the best wide receiver scouting department in the league. We know what we've got in Stephon Diggs over in Minnesota. Let's just go get him. Let's go get him and let's see what, we can, what, what Josh Allen is and if we can pay him early. And that's what Howie Roseman should have done. Right. Instead of drafting Devontae Smith, he should have come to Jesus on his weakness in drafting wide receiver. I mean, and there are a whole bunch of ways to go about it, right? I mean, I think Bill kind of admitted it to himself this offseason. I'm not going to suck you into more Eagles talk. The Eagles fans are triggered. (laughs) We're not going to do it. I was teasing you. I know you don't want to do it. It's like the last place you want to go. That's a dark corner of football talk that you don't want to wander into today. I'm not going to guide you into that area. We are... In the bowels of the catacombs, I have the torch. I know my way around. I'm not going to lead you astray. I promise, Anand. (laughs) It's all good, man. But I think, you know, whether it's the Eagles or the Patriots, I think every scouting department needs to be able to scout themselves as well, you know, and, and, and tweak their process as they see what their hits are and what their misses are. For example, if you want to learn how to scout receivers, go grab someone from Pittsburgh. Because I promise you, they're going to be better than whoever you have in your building. I mean, who was the last Pittsburgh receiver that didn't hit? You can argue James Washington, but other than that, 
Who are we talking about? James Washington could be fine somewhere else. He's just getting phased out because the talent is improving around him every year. Right. And they trusted when they saw Josh Allen that he was the guy. And they didn't let him sit. They didn't do anything to hinder his improvement. They just sat there and said, okay, we believe in our coaching staff. We believe we have the right guys in the front office, and we believe this kid can take us where we need to go. Let's get him out there. Let's get the early bumps out of the way. Let's see what he can do without any of the help. And then let's go get pieces that we know fit his skill set after we've seen him on the field. Because it's one thing to go get pieces for somebody that you've seen on the practice field. It's entirely different when you have live game reps of somebody and you're like, okay, he tends to slide to his right a little bit more. All right, well, maybe we should prioritize right guard a little bit more than left guard. Okay, well, you know, now that we've done that, let's prioritize rushers that rush right better than they rush left. How do we want to how do we want to scheme our offense? Do we want stuff moving to the right intentionally? Do we want to build off of that and have stuff bootlegging back left? Do we want receivers that run outbreaking routes better than they run vertical routes? You know, all of these elements of scouting that you take and you put into a quarterback matter for every other position as well, but they only matter if you get the quarterback right. Because the rest of this is all a castle built on top of your quarterback. And so you can only go as far as they take you. This Josh Allen deal is stunning in today's dollars. And yet, not egregious when you think about where the salary cap is going over the next five to ten years. He's going to account at one point in 2025, his cap hit is more than $50 million. At first glance, you might think this is an overpay, and yet I suspect that when you dig into it, you're going to think it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought! I knew it! There's no reason to be alarmed. Um, the cap will jump up, and then the best part about doing deals like this where you've kind of front-loaded guaranteed money is when you get to paying him towards the end of this contract, it's going to be super easy to restructure and adjust to whatever the cap is at the time, right? Teams that left themselves variable, like, you know, that, that had already paid out most of their guaranteed money that could meander contracts around, had a much easier time navigating 2020 and 2021 than teams that didn't. And that's not necessarily their fault, right? It's just a difference of philosophy, a difference of opinion, difference of whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, it gives them more flexibility going forward. Once Josh has been paid all of his guaranteed money, it's not like they're going to run him out of Buffalo. God forbid there's some horrific injury, knock on wood, that doesn't happen. But God forbid, unless, barring some kind of injury or, you know, some kind of Carson Wentz dissension, you know, way out of left field that nobody saw coming. I think he's going to be there way longer than 2028 anyway. And so I don't think they have any hesitation in giving him this deal and kind of looking on the horizon in terms of, okay, I think what pieces do we need to keep around him, right? Because you can't keep everybody. When your quarterback's expensive, you can't keep everybody. And what is he going to do with the money? I mean, this guy's going to make $150 million guaranteed. It's not chump change. Guaranteed. Yeah. I mean, and I mean. That's the bare minimum. And then by 2026, he's going to be looking at making $40 million in 2027, and he's not going to play for $40 million in 2027. $40 million might be what backup quarterbacks make in 2027. That's when he's going to go to management and say, okay, it's yeah. time to restructure. More than likely. Um, it's very, very rare that, especially on these long-term deals, that they're not tweaked at some point. I mean, uh, Mahomes 
was tweaked in year one of the contract. I mean, they didn't even let him go through a full off season after the deal and before they started, you know, moving stuff around. So, I mean, it's, it's more of a guarantee for the player and their agent and, you know, so that they can kind of set up their future and realize, Hey, we want you here. You can set down roots here. We're not going to move off of you. This isn't a prove it year. Like, you know, more stuff like that than it is truly, hey, here's $258 million. I think he's going to probably make realistically a lot more than that. The only thing that he was worried about is what 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 am I going to be guaranteed for the next three, four, five years so that I can play here and then we'll figure out the rest later. Parents, you want your kids to be quarterbacks. <laughs> this is oh, yeah. what this tells me. This is what you want. They're protected. They're not allowed to be hit high. They can't be hit low, but they can be paid $150 million after one good season. This is what one good season in the NFL can buy you. A hundred. What is he going to do with this money? What are you going to do with this? I have no idea. But going off of the, the point that you made about parents talking to their kids, parents of high school athletes, do not let your kids play running back. Make them play wide receiver. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes, this is why. It's a very logical transition. A lot of guys have done it. I mean, the earlier you get started, the more natural the footwork is. It's it's pretty alarming just how decentivized you are to be be a running back in in the modern NFL and even in college football. Right. I I mean, it's just it's it's a tough life out there for running backs. But if you're if you're Josh Allen, maybe you do the whole J.J. Watt thing where you Google what do rich people buy. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. At some point, I think in three years, Trey Lance will have that problem as well. It's a good problem Ooh. to have. Yeah. It's a good problem yeah. to have. Oh, it's the best problem to have. You love what San Francisco is doing, their team structure, drafting Trey Lance. They're set up to exceed expectations this year, even in what could be the most brutal division in football. Why are you so high in the 49ers? Because they found value where other people didn't. Um, I mean, you can start with Lance, right? They knew that of all of the quarterbacks in round one, more than likely he was probably going to be the biggest project, right? The same was true of Allen when he came out in that class. I think when you look at Lance and what San Francisco is going to build around him, look at what they did in the draft. I mean, Aaron Banks, Trey Sermon, there's another guy for your backfield. Just for fun, here's another toy, right? Ambry Thomas, Diamador Lenore, who at Oregon was this little bit undersized, but great, great, great corner that they got late in the draft. Justin Hilliard, Ohio State undrafted free agent, who flew all over the field for Ohio State. I mean, well, how, how did he go undrafted? I have no idea. I, th- I think there were probably health concerns, um, as there were for him at Ohio State. You know, everybody that you talked to in Columbus was just wow, when this kid is out there, he's the difference maker, right? That was the guy. In Col- I mean, for the past few years, the, everybody was talking about like, hey, man, when Justin Hilliard gets out there. So, I mean, when you go into it f- further, right? On our draft show, the player that slipped the most that was arguably the, the biggest steal because of injury, according to Cody Carpentier, was Quinn Maynard's, the lineman that the Broncos drafted. Whitewater, yep. Oh, my God. This guy is a pot belly too. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. This is how you know he's good. Absolute unit. Absolute unit. Oh, he's a unit. Yeah. Elite beer chugger, too, I'm sure. 
he didn't play in 2020 because he went to a Division three school that canceled the football program. That's what it was. It was just the steal of the draft. This reminds me of that. Yeah. I mean, anybody that watched Ohio State last year, especially against Clemson, I mean, Justin Hilliard was everywhere. So I, I, I have no idea. You know, maybe maybe they were kind of off-put by the, the fact that they couldn't get their doctors with him immediately, you know, at the combine. I think that probably hurt him a lot more. How are you not using a seventh-round pick on a guy like that, though? I don't know. Because a seventh-round pick is kind of a throwaway at that point. Yeah, I would only draft injured players in the seventh round. Matt, the big problem is a lot of these guys will tell their agents, hey, if I don't get you know taken by round five, tell teams not to draft me. Because their undrafted free agent contracts are often better than the incentivized contracts of sixth and seventh rounders. And they can become free agents after just three years. Right. And, and the thing is, you get to choose your team. If you get drafted in round seven, you've got to go play for whoever drafts you. If, you, if you're an undrafted free agent, you can shop around. That's the last place you want to be is a round seven pick. Round seven is worst case scenario. You don't get to pick your team, and you have to play for that team for an extra year. Yep. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I would rather be a priority undrafted free agent than a seventh round draft pick, even if on oh, draft yeah. day, even if you never get to say I wasn't drafted, blah, 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 whatever. I think it worked out all right for a few guys. Ask Austin Eckler how he's doing. Austin Eckler is working out just fine, and he also gets the chip on the shoulder, so it's also motivation. I was never drafted. I'm going to show this league what I can do. Further about San Francisco, they're, they're going to have to make up for the loss of uh, Robert Sala and Mike LaFleur, Matt LaFleur's little brother. But Mike McDaniel gets a shot finally. You know, it was kind of a three-man show there between LaFleur, McDaniel, and uh, – and Kyle Shanahan, and so McDaniel kind of gets his shot to be the guy, and you know a lot of people think that he's going to do very well there. Is he related to Josh McDaniel? No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. No relation. Not, at least okay. not as far as at least not as far as I'm aware. Okay, so he might actually become a good head coach someday. Then. <laughs> oh man, that's brutal. That's brutal. Fair shot though. I can't argue with that one. It's totally fair. I mean, you get D'Amico Ryans to run the defense who, you know, played all those great Pro Bowl years in Houston. He clearly understands defense. Oh. I loved what they did in free agency, too. And and nobody's really talking about that side of things. Alex Mack, Samson Ebicom, saw him a lot as a Rams fan. Really, really solid edge rusher. Tavon Wilson, Arden Key, Tony Jefferson, Mo Hurt, Mohamed Sanu, right? These are guys that you've heard of. And maybe, especially when you talk about Mo Sanu, maybe he doesn't get out there often, but he's going to be so important to the development of those younger guys. And I, I think when you look at, you know, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, all these young weapons that, that they're trying to, to get out there with Kittle and then eventually with Lance whenever they do decide to start him, I think it logically makes sense what they're doing. You can kind of see the natural progression from Jimmy G is our guy and we paid him all of this money to, all right, let's build an offense that kind of doesn't necessarily fit any person's skill set individually, but that can run the ball. And when we decide to throw has a dynamic vertical passing element too. And whatever quarterback we find that best fits that skill set and that offense, we'll just draft them. And so going off of that, I think, Trey Lance might sit a little longer than you think, but I think he'll be better for it. Patrick Mahomes sat 15 games in his rookie season. He started one game, week 17, and it didn't matter. They were already locked into a playoff spot. So 
Patrick Mahomes played zero games that mattered as a rookie. That's in Trey Lance's range of outcomes. It is. If the San Francisco 49ers start hot and Jimmy Garoppolo is playing well, what do you think's going to happen? Are you just going to bench him just because? Hey, remember we, we drafted a guy? We got to make sure we get him in there. Doesn't matter if we're winning. They're going to ride Garoppolo as long as he's winning. So I think those are the organizational forces that matter most. It's not the psychology of the general manager who drafted the guy at three that's going to dictate when Trey Lance actually gets in there and gets under center. I think that especially drafting Trey Lance in best ball is risky. It is risky. I think it's riskier drafting him than it is drafting Justin Fields because we know the Bears – need help at a lot of different positions across the board, and they're going to call on Justin Fields to help them win some games sooner rather than later. My worry is in San Francisco that they're going to get on a roll and never turn to Lance. What are the forces that you think could propel the team to put Lance in other than a Jimmy Garoppolo injury? That head coach GM dynamic is really important to consider here. And one of the the primary objective of a GM is to assemble the best roster, right? And then you have to believe in your head coach to get the best out of that talented roster that you can. And so a lot of the times, you know, while head coaches are judged on uh, final records, I don't think that's a fair assessment of how a GM is doing. Um, and sometimes it's also not a fair assessment of how a coach is doing. Obviously, we know Shanahan's brilliant and last year really isn't his fault. But I think it's going to be tough for Kyle to not love the dimension that Lance brings to an offense as a dynamic athlete at quarterback. And obviously he's got a cannon for an arm, Um, but it's tough to ignore Jimmy Garoppolo's in there. They win. I mean, he's 24 and nine, I believe as a starter in San Francisco, like that's hard to ignore. You're winning, you know, three out of every four games. The guy starts, I I mean, you know, that's a pretty good deal. I mean, I mean, it doesn't matter who you're talking about. Right. And it's going to be hard to just abandon that and say, you know what, we're rebuilding, rebuilding for what, you know, I mean, if they go 12 and four with Jimmy Garoppolo, how do you put him on the sideline? And, you know, weirdly (sighs) enough, weirdly enough, I think you might have a, an Alex Smith, Colin Kaepernick 2.0 situation here where the incumbent starter is really good and playing well. And it might just take one injury to force the young kid out there just to watch how the dimensions of the offense change with him in there to really get him going. Cause I don't see pressure coming from the top for them to start him now. Cause let's remind everybody throw last year out the window pandemic season. Congrats, Tom Brady. Well done, everybody. I'm glad we all got through it with no major COVID scares, you know, in terms of the health of athletes. Good. Well done, everybody. But you can kind of throw that one out in terms of, you know, how prepared everybody was to play. Nobody knew what they could do, what they couldn't do. All the restrictions were different in every state. I mean, we we can get into all that again at some point, but I mean, 2020 is kind of an outlier. The last time we had a full, normal, regular season, your NFC champion was San Francisco. So let's not go, go crazy here and assume that they're, what were they last year? Three and 13. That's, I mean, come on. Like that's not who they are. That's not what they do. Right. When we look at San Francisco, we know how good a team they are. And they're not going to pressure anybody to, to be the starter or not, and not be the starter. I think they're going to trust Kyle to do that. 
Um, I think he's more concerned with getting quality play out of whoever suits up at quarterback. I don't think he'd ask them to do the same things. I think the offense is kind of multiple. Obviously, a lot of their stuff, like 80% is going to converge, but that the 20% dimension that that you're adding when you get Trey Lance in there kind of opens everything up and, and kind of turns into Kyle's funhouse. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a really fine line between wanting to get him out there as a rookie and get his feet wet, kind of like Mahomes did at the end of his first season. And messing up a good thing if if Jimmy can return to his 2019 form when, I mean, hey, we're one throw, one throw away from discussing Jimmy Garoppolo in an entirely different light. Like when he airmailed George Kittle on a five-yard slant and got him injured? Oh, that was bad. That was bad. That, that's, that's QB 101. You don't do that. That was on the quarterback. That one was on the quarterback. Yeah, we can't argue that one. I, th- I think it was uh, Emmanuel Sanders that he overthrew deep in the fourth quarter of that of that game that might have that might have put it away um, before you know Casey got their shot to win that game. Woof. But I mean, he's he's gonna want that pass back forever. Yeah, he's won a few passes back. Yeah, that one in particular. But I, I mean, that's just how I see San Fran's going about all of this when the. NFL insiders were speculating whether San Francisco would draft Mac Jones or Trey Lance. They talked about how Kyle Shanahan was locking himself in his office and going through the tape on both quarterbacks, going back and forth, back and forth. And they talked about how the team drafted Trey Sermon because this was the running back that Kyle Shanahan wanted. He handpicked him for this stretch zone scheme that is now his signature. So my question is, where is John Lynch? What is his job? If Kyle Shanahan is picking the players and he's coaching the players, what is the general manager doing? Is he just providing tech support <laughs> for, for Shanahan? What is John Lynch's job? What would you say, John, you do here? Well, look, I already told you. I deal with the goddamn customers so the engineers don't have to. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. Can't you understand it? What the hell is wrong with you people? Well, Matt, I think it's important to empower your head coach to override certain decisions, right? And if Kyle believes that a certain running back is going to fit his scheme better than others, then I think you have to give him the ability to make that decision based on how productive his run game has been. I mean, I would argue that it's the most creative run game that we have in the league. So... So, when he asks for a running back, you take his guy. Right now, Lynch's job is to value, well, when do we take his guy? How many of his guys can we take? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Right? Because, I mean, coach, you can love 97 guys. You can't take them all. He has a lot of guys. I'm sure they love Najee Harris. I don't think they were going to take him. Right? So, I mean, when when people talk about, oh, this guy got handpicked as our third-round pick, guys, nobody has any idea if, if he's going to be there at the end of round one, right? So, there's so many moving pieces here and how you have him valued and, and how you want to use your capital to move up and down your draft board to kind of get the guys that you, you have starred on your list of, okay, I think this guy's going to be a value in the draft for us. It's a little more important than, oh, we think this is the best guy. Because more often than not, you're not going to get the best guy at every position that you need to address in any given draft. It's just unlikely to happen. When you look at how those two make decisions in tandem, though, it clearly tells me that John Lynch's identity on this football team is, all right, 
I am going to, as a former All-Pro Safety Hall of Famer, I am going to do as much digging as I can into the defensive side of the ball when we go to draft. Kyle, you handle the offensive side of the ball so we don't clash heads on watching the same thing 97 times, right? We'll we'll have our scouts look at everything. You focus on the offense. I'll focus on the defense. And we'll bring our board together when we get together and say, hey, well, we think this safety is really, really, really special. And he's fallen to round three. I'm okay taking him in round two. We think this running back might slip a little bit from round two to round three. If you really like this guy, let's go safety in round two and hope that your guy's there in round three or make make a move to move up. So it's not as much of a Kyle wanted okay. this guy as you know as it seems, which obviously Kyle wanted the guys. I mean, he's going to have to coach him. John wanted the guys because he drafted him. I've heard that Kyle gets his guys. And the thing is, if you're a GM, you want to get a head coach his guys, right? Like that's the that's the whole point of this. Also, if I'm investing a quarter million dollars in a quarterback, we talked about this with Aaron Rodgers. It would also behoove a general manager the glue of the organization to empower the franchise player in the decision-making as well. Yeah. And have him submit his list. Oh, yeah. Even if you don't draft any of his players, hey, Kyle Shanahan, send me your list. Hey, Aaron Rodgers, send me your list. They'll be considered. Why not? Why not? That's just all it takes there. It takes it turning down the ego and turning up the modesty slightly. That's all that takes. Yep. That's all it is. Because I think, I mean, Matt, when we talk about kind of the guy in San Francisco, I think the face of that team is eventually going to be Lance. But for right now, I think the face of that team is probably Nick Bosa, just based on what they've invested in him. There you go. Ask Nick Bosa. Who do you want? That's what I'm saying. When when you let some of your D linemen go, when you let DeForest Buckner go, go to Indianapolis... Ask him who you want, who he wants next to him, because nobody's going to understand defensive linemen better than that guy. You know who called Jerry Jones and insisted that he draft Dak Prescott? You know who who did that? Michael Irvin. Michael Irvin. Yeah. The Cowboys scouting department wanted Jeff Driscoll. Submitted the name Jeff Driscoll to Jerry Jones. The phone rang. It was Michael Irvin, and he demanded they draft Dak Prescott. Said you got to do it, and then. Jerry said, no, they're going to go Driscoll, and Michael Irvin lost his fucking mind, and Jerry went Dak. Well, there you go, right? I mean, who's going to know a quarterback better than a guy that was catching passes from one of the best to ever do it? He also had a son that was in college football, and he was very familiar, and Jerry did the right thing. That's what good leadership does, is you open up the possibilities, and you hear as many voices as possible that can contribute good ideas to the process. Right. That's your job. Yeah. I can't believe it over time. I'm like, this guy's been getting better and better. Jerry Jones has been getting better and better with age at this job. That's how complicated the job is. Oh, yeah. Jerry Jones has to turn 70 before he can finally get good at it. Well, the, a big part, part of the problem, Matt, is, you know, it's like we talked about in the initial show. As a GM, you are the sole output for an infinite number of inputs that you get every day, whether it's fans, your wife tells you something, your kids hear something, people in the front office hear something, one of the players on the team wants you to draft his buddy from college. Like There are so many factors at play here when you're a general manager making that decision that sometimes you've just got to turn off all the noise and trust one or two people, whether it's yourself or somebody else, that, that you know have the best interest of the team at heart and really, really, really want something, right? 
I mean, with a, I think Dak was a fourth or fifth round pick, whatever it was. I think he was round four. Dak, what does burning a round four pick do for you? If you're wrong about Dak Prescott or Jeff Driscoll, it doesn't matter. But if someone is putting themselves on the line saying, hey, I know this guy can succeed in Dallas. I believe in him. And that guy is the most accomplished receiver in your franchise's history. Arguably one of the, the receivers ever that might have had a shot to win MVP. I think I would listen to that guy over my own scouting department sometimes just because the numbers can get convoluted. Not every guy has watched every player. There's there's just no way to understand how you came to, to the conclusions that you came to other than, okay, guy A really knows quarterbacks. All right, well, he believes in Driscoll. All right, let's take Driscoll. I think when you have a Michael Irvin that calls up a Jerry Jones and says, hey, we need to take Dak Prescott. Yeah, in, in that one situation, I think abandoning the board and – you know, kind of playing to what you know makes sense. 11 in chance. That's what I know. <laughs> Dak Prescott has 11 in chance. The football is just absorbed by his hand. Everyone that's listening to the sound of my voice right now, the next time you watch the Cowboys, watch the ball in Dak Prescott's hand. It looks like one of those those rubber toy footballs that you throw to a dog. It's tiny. It looks so small in his hand. <laughs> well, Matt, the other thing too, right, is, you know, all of the, the things that we worry about at the combine, right, historically. Oh, you want a guy to be six foot three or taller. Oh, you want him to be two hundred and twenty ish pounds or so, so he can absorb a little bit more of a hit. Oh, you want him to be a three year starter in college and play it over twenty five games and you, you, all these you know geriatric uh, quarterback thresholds. Well, they existed for a reason. Now, obviously, quarterbacks now are different and they come in all shapes and sizes, and you can find whatever you know floats your boat. But some of those things are still important. And when you talk about hand size, it's not necessarily about ball control. Um, you know, a lot of people worry about like, oh, is he going to be able to throw the ball down the field with smaller hands? I mean, Aaron Rodgers has big hands, even though he's not the tallest guy. He's got big hands. The reason that that kind of matters is when he got smacked on the backside by Dallas in that playoff game that he finally threw that beautiful ball to Jared Cook on the sideline. They kicked the field goal and won. Oh, yeah. He got flattened, and the ball was out in his hand. And the fact that he had giant mitts and could secure that sucker are probably the only reason that he, that he didn't fumble that ball. That's when it matters. Yeah, it matters. It also matters when there are wet conditions, there's cold conditions. Right. The numbers support this. Right. Quarterback efficiency rises in bad game conditions as hand size grows there's only a couple quarterbacks with what you'd consider small hands that have been productive the last couple of years. Ryan Tannehill is one of them, but it's a rare case. Usually, these guys, like you said, huge mitts, like a Josh Allen, like a Dak Prescott. You know who else has huge hands is Mac Jones, and you got to love that if you're in New England. Yeah, he has close to 10-inch hands as well. Now, just based on the record that San Francisco posted with Jimmy Garoppolo, they shouldn't have been in the market for a quarterback. They traded for Jimmy Garoppolo. He was the face of the franchise. They were a winning team when he was healthy. And yet they decided, no, 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 no. Trey Lance is just too good to give up. We want to trade up and we want to get a guy that could be the next Patrick Mahomes. It's worth it. It's worth it to move up to get a guy that's that special, that has that Mahomesian ceiling. We're going to chase that rainbow. 
I love that. I yeah. love aggression. You know I love aggression. I love shooting for upside. Same. Which made it all the more bizarre that you had a team like the Broncos, like Carolina, passing on both Justin Fields and the aforementioned Mac Jones. These are teams with worse quarterbacks than San Francisco, right? Is Sam Darnold better than Jimmy Garoppolo? No. Is Teddy Bridgewater better than Jimmy Garoppolo? No. Yet somehow these teams pass on Fields and Jones. Why? Sometimes front offices make decisions that that you take a first glance at it and you're like, ah, that doesn't make sense. You look at it twice, it still doesn't make sense. Then you hear them try to justify it and you're like, I see your logic, but this still doesn't make sense. And that's kind of where I'm at with Carolina and Denver because a lot of the stuff that they've done seems kind of win-now-ish, you know, extending Christian McCaffrey, right? Drafting Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, Noah Fant, K.J. Hamler, right? Right? Resigning Von Miller, doing all of these things that they've done over the past couple years seems like they kind of want to trend in an upward direction. Like, Like they're trying to compete to an extent but then you handicap yourself by trotting out Darnold or Bridgewater or Drew Locke and it makes no sense to me um from everything that I've heard Denver just wasn't sold on on Justin Fields which is so odd you know I I, it was consensus one two between him and Trevor Lawrence their entire lives I mean since they were 13 years old they they were one and two Suddenly, Zach Wilson entered the mix, Trey Lance entered the mix, Mac Jones entered the mix, and you know everybody lost their minds for a minute and kind of forgot about Justin Fields, which I thought was wildly unfair. Um, and I mean, the other thing, too, going back to our prior discussion. It was just irrational. Oh, it makes no sense. Yeah. The, the other thing, too, is remember how we were talking not too long ago about, you know, who's going to know someone better than somebody from their own position that's a Hall of Famer? John Elway, what are you doing? Wasn't Justin Fields essentially the John Elway of his era? Yes. <laughs> yes. If not Trevor Lawrence, then it's him, right? Because, I mean, they were the number one and number two rated quarterbacks, I think, of the last seven or eight years coming out. And if you look at just composite rankings, I think they were number one and number two. They just happened to be in the same year, right? I mean, in any other year, Justin Fields is going number one. So the fact that he slips in this draft is asinine. I mean, it makes no sense. Yeah, to pass two teams that needed quarterback badly, desperately. I think they thought they could stop the bleeding with a Bridgewater and and with a a Darnold. (laughs) But the really weird part is Justin Fields fell to you, right? Like It'd be one thing if they had to move up, and we we could make a different discussion about that. You didn't have to move. I I think something something came out today, I can't remember which one of them it was, that said, um, oh, uh, star DBs are harder to find than star quarterbacks. Excuse me? Yeah, I think that came out. I'm pretty sure it was Denver. I'm pretty sure Denver drafting Sertan. I'm pretty sure that came out from Denver today, which edit that out if it didn't. But if it did, if it did, I'm pretty sure it did. What? Like, hmm? what, what did, did Jalen Ramsey win Jacksonville? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Yeah, that, that, that has no basis in reality. Jacksonville just put C.J. Henderson on the block, and he was a top 10 pick last year. That just happened. It's stuff like that where you're just like, guys, find a quarterback. And if you can't find a quarterback, then start building the team. If they said this about tackle, I would understand it because that's actually true. Yeah. But it's not true about perimeter players. Yeah. Don't give me perimeter players. Don't give me safety. Don't give me running back. Don't give me cornerback. Don't give me wide receiver. Get out of here. Because, I mean— 
and I mean, J.C. Horn and Sertan, I think, are both going to be really, really good. Yeah, they're good players. Yes, they're good. Yes, fine. They're going to be worth where they were drafted, I believe. But they're not going to be worth more than Justin Fields is worth to Chicago. The thing is, as much flack as Chicago got for drafting Trubisky, they got the position right. They got the player wrong, but they got the position right, right? At, at least you swung on quarterback. If you swing on quarterback five times and miss, so be it. I can live with that because you're trying to do the right thing. If you miss five times on cornerback or on tight end, I question your decision-making process, right? Like, I, I don't think he'll be a bust. But if TJ Hawkinson is a bust, that is a complete waste of a draft pick by Detroit. You didn't learn anything. You didn't improve your scouting process. You learned nothing. You drafted a tight end in the top 10, which shouldn't even be allowed. That shit should be illegal. Right, and I mean, even a freak like Kyle Pitts. I mean, we can argue about the value there as much as we want to. If he doesn't hit, how bad does that draft pick look? Because Sewell and Fields went after him, which made it look all the worse. It was bad on its face. Then you look at the opportunity cost they paid. Oh, yeah. And it was tragic. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, the thing is, Denver and Carolina can can sleep at night if Justin Fields doesn't turn into an all-pro. If he does, it's further evidence that they don't know what they're doing, which is sad because George Payton is is a brilliant dude. Well, one of Fields or Mac Jones is going to ascend, and they're going to feel bad because the 49ers gave the game away that it was between Mac Jones and Trey Lance for Kyle Shanahan. Knowing that, you should be moving Mac Jones up your board on principle. Yeah. Come on, man. What? Do you, what? I believe that there's a case to be made by Carolina and by Denver that they needed cornerbacks so badly. But time and time again, the teams that I see making bad decisions and having bad drafts are those that fixate more on need and fit than they do on ability and value. Yeah. Would you agree with that? It is absolutely more about the, the draft is more about value than fit. Right. I mean, I'm not talking about scheme fit. I'm talking about the team needs. You can always have more good players, right? Like good players are good. I don't think that can be argued, right? right? Especially when they play important positions, right? I mean, if you have three really good quarterbacks, is that ever a bad thing? I mean, I mean, if you have if you have three really good edge rushers, is that ever really a bad thing? Like, like, yeah, there, there's what it costs you to get them. Might be a little tough to stomach, but I I don't think that when you look at draft capital that that most teams use it the proper way. No, and we have the greatest mistake of the last couple of years, the Las Vegas Raiders selecting Henry Ruggs over Tristan Wirfs. That was the greatest mistake in the last five years. I believe that we will, a year or two from now, view passing on Justin Fields as a mistake, but we, we need some data on their NFL performance to back that up first. For sure. We have plenty of data now on Tristan Wirfs and Henry Ruggs. The case was Ruggs filled a need, and he was a scheme fit. It was scheme fit, need, scheme fit, need, scheme fit, need. When the best player available at value, based on position scarcity of that particular position and the value they bring to the team, was Tristan Wirfs. In a vacuum, it had to be Tristan Wirfs, but the perceived strength of the Raiders was their offensive line. They had great depth. And they had great talent at that position. A year later, it's vaporized. Now offensive line is a need in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. Which debunks scheme fit and need as a major criteria, especially where you're going to use early round draft capital when a Tristan Wirfs and Javon Kinlaw were both on the board. That was egregious. 
Oh, it was bad. It was really, really bad. It was egregious at the time. We said it at the time. This can't happen. It can't happen. Mayock, Gruden, you can't do this. This was real-time analysis that came in when the Ruggs pick was uttered by Roger Goodell. The, the thing is, there's no problem drafting for a need, but they have to also have value, right? And that's, that's the issue that we have with the Ruggs pick, right? Don't draft a punter in the third round. There's just never going to be value there. He could be the greatest punter of all time. There's no value there. Similarly, when, right. when, you, when you throw darts at high upside guys in positions of value late in the draft, it's a great way to create net positive value, right? Finding a Richard Sherman in the fifth round, right? Finding receivers in round six and round seven. Antonio Brown, sixth round pick, right? When you find guys like that at positions of value, maybe not the most important positions on the field, but positions where you can create net positive value on your draft capital, I think that's where you, where you throw darts. You don't want to throw darts in rounds one, two, and three. There you should be getting fairly established guys with high ceilings or generationally athletic freaks, right? I mean, yes, we can argue if the Ziggy onside experiment worked or not. Dude was a f- absolute freak. There, there, I mean, there's no, we, we, there's no arguing that, right? So I, I, I can live with the round one picks that are missed. What I can't live with is round one picks that were squandered, that you got nothing out of, right? If Chicago learned their lesson from taking Mitchell Trubisky number two overall, you can live with that. Because at least the, the, the logic was sound. The draft pick wasn't. It was, we need a quarterback. We think quarterback's the highest value position. Let's go get one. They just got the wrong one. And yes, that sucks. If Makai Becton busts, that's not because there was bad process going on behind the scenes in New York. It's just what happens. Yeah. Sometimes you can take the biggest, baddest offensive lineman at slot 10 and it doesn't work out. And that's fine. You can learn lessons from that pick and continue to draft the right players at the right positions at value depending on where you're drafting them. And if we look back in two years and they're not extending Kai Becton because it didn't work out, oh well. At the time, and even today as we're talking, that was a great pick. I agree. I agree. It, it does. It doesn't. How a draft pick turns out is all twenty twenty hindsight. That's all information that you didn't have at the time of the draft, right? And so we can argue all we want about how good someone turns out to be, but that's not really an adequate way to evaluate a draft pick. The only information you should use to evaluate someone's draft process and a draft pick is the information they had at the time. Yes, now Patrick Mahomes would go number one overall. Right, The issue that we have is not with drafting Mitchell Trubisky over Patrick Mahomes. Anybody that throws that out there is insane. Nobody knew he was going to be this. Okay, We thought he was a guy with a lot of upside, kind of a Josh Allen type, might require a little bit more, might require an elite head coach, elite offensive line, elite weapons, whatever. But the travesty here is you didn't do your homework and you missed on Deshaun Watson. Right, That was the, this is the home run pick, everybody knows it, why did you ignore him? So when you, when you evaluate someone's process, you can't go into the future and say, oh well, the guy had a bunch of knee injuries in college, he had a bunch of knee injuries in the pros and flamed out, that was a bad pick. Well, I mean, you don't have the medical information that they had. Maybe he was completely healed and he had another freak injury. So be it. 
I mean, you can only use the information you had at the time of the draft to evaluate something. Because we love to go back and evaluate things. And it's a lot of fun, and it gives us something to talk about. And obviously, we want to see how these players progress from when they're drafted to, you know, when they leave the league. So be it. No issue with that. The thing is, when you're evaluating a general manager, a front office, a head coach, and even a player themselves, the most important thing is, what information did we have at the time of the draft, and did you make the best decision that you could, given the information that you had? Because you can't you can't move 10 months into the future and figure out what this guy's going to be. You can only draft him based on what he's already done and what he is right now. Yeah, and if I'm drafting in the first round, second round, and my coaches, my owner, Michael Irvin calls me, don't talk to me about need. Talk to me about positional scarcity, positional impact, and upside. Those are the things I want to hear about in those early rounds. That's it. Once we get into round three, four, five, six, okay, we can start to fill out the roster and address some depth concerns. Sure. Position coaches, come in here. Let's talk about guard. Let's do that. But you just don't do that early because you're focusing on the wrong details. Patrick Mahomes was an upside play. Makai Becton was an upside play. Those were picks born of good process. Yeah, and I think that's the most important thing, right? Is if you're trying to evaluate your own team, if you're looking at, you know, let's say you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. They know that they draft wide receivers well. And they know that this is Ben Roethlisberger's likely last year. They burned a first-round pick on a running back. Is that good process? No. Historically, have they had good process? Absolutely. So that tells me that this is a one-off scenario, right? Where they believe that it's their last chance to get a ring for Ben. They wanted to get him one final toy, and they really didn't like what they had in their running back room. And they love Najee Harris's ability to catch out of the backfield and bring them a dimension they didn't have. The defense is pretty much built. Yeah, they need a little help on the O-line. The offense is pretty much built. Let's just see what we can do in Ben's final run. So even though we all were like idiots, why would you draft him in the first round? I mean, their process for years has been rock solid, right? This is the one time that they've abandoned their process to say, okay, we know this is a need. We'll go get this one guy. And what Matt and I are saying is not that you can't do that occasionally. It's just if that's your process, if you're the Raiders and every year at the top of the draft you are throwing darts at somebody who is who might not even be in round one, stop it. What are you doing? Like you Knock can't you can't you can't build a roster throwing darts at people that probably shouldn't even be taken in the first round. And that that's kind of the frustration when you when you're a fan of a team like that is guys like how can we the fans understand something that you don't? Like that's when that's when you really have an issue and when you can really fight with the front office and and have a legitimate argument to why hey, this guy should probably be gone. We have to talk about what's happening with the Colts because the reports come out a week ago that Carson Wentz is going to miss possibly the first half of the season. And then a few days later, oh, Quentin Nelson has the same injury. Now Chris Mortensen's reporting, no, 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 no. Wentz might be ready for week one, as will Quentin Nelson. What happened? Sometimes you get lucky, Matt. Sometimes you get lucky. And my guess is one of the world's foremost doctors in the surgery that they required was somewhere in the Midwest or somewhere in Indianapolis. And he did the surgery. And, you know, it's, it's a lot like... Any, anytime you're, you're talking about putting a scalpel 
or cutting up the human body. You really got to trust your process. It's why everybody goes to Dr. James Andrews for surgery. It's why everybody listening to this has heard that name before is because once you become the go-to guy for something and people have trust and belief in you because not only are you their doctor during the surgery, but you're the one helping them find a recovery lab. They're the ones that are going to tell you, hey, this is going to hurt a little more than usual. Hey, it's going to be 16 months before you feel yourself again. All of these things go into that recovery process. And my guess is one of the foremost specialists for that particular foot surgery is in the Midwest area in Indianapolis somewhere. And he put together the timetable saying, hey guys, you might be 85, 90%, but there's no risk of re-injury. So sit out all of training camp, but there's a chance that you'll be ready to go week one. And I think what Mort is reporting is that these injuries, because NFL teams will tell you what the injury is, but they often won't tell you the extent of it. Maybe it wasn't as bad as we initially thought. They they were they would just rather clean them both up right now and say, hey, you know, maybe it'll take them two, three, four weeks to get their footing again, you know, to be a hundred percent. But we'd rather that than this linger on and put you on IR in week six when we realize that you have to have surgery. So I think that's kind of what went on. I think the, the Colts were playing a little bit gamesmanship about how bad the injuries were, but also my guess is their surgeon did about as good a job as you can do and kind of gave them the okay for, hey, you're going to be on the shorter end of this timetable. You can probably prepare to play week one. Wow. 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 You know who had the biggest smile after this news was released today? Who? Howie Roseman. Because Howie Roseman is desperate for Carson Wentz to play at least 69% of the snaps. He just has to play 70%. He just needs Carson Wentz to play 70% of the snaps, and he gets a first-round pick from the Colts. Yep. So I feel like somehow, some way, Chris Ballard wanted to engineer this injury so that Wentz would play exactly 69% of the snaps. Now this news comes out, oh, no, actually, it looks like he's going to be playing at least 80%, barring another injury that happens, and a lot of quarterbacks get hurt during the season. So oh, yeah. <laughs> keep those fingers crossed, Howie. Yeah, and I mean, you're going to see him pulled in blowouts a little earlier than other quarterbacks, I would assume. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, we got to get, yes, because we got to get Eason some work. We got to get Ellinger some work. Yeah. The other thing, too, is look at the sub packages that are going to come in for Ellinger. That's just, that's my guess, you know, as a running quarterback. My guess is he'll have a few sub packages. I think they're going to get very creative in trying to not give up that first round pick if they're kind of close, you know, week 12, week 13. Oh, no. Oh, and... If their playoff spot is secure heading into week 18... Oh, there's no chance. If their playoff spot's secure heading into week 17, they may sit them too. Oh, poor Howie. How did general managers get themselves in this situation? Can you walk us through the negotiations that would lead both parties to the 70% snap share number? If you were Chris Ballard, you want to return on your investment, right? And and obviously, if you're Howie Roseman, you're trying to... to not necessarily dump Carson Wentz. You know, you're, you're trying to you're trying to get adequate value back for him. And this is kind of a weird situation because it doesn't often happen with a quarterback. Um, but I think that seventy percent number is probably based in some kind of either his twenty nineteen or his twenty twenty or maybe his twenty eighteen. Uh, snap share or kind of what the average for starting quarterbacks was somehow they hashed that out to, to be like this very flat round number. 
Um, the round one, round two pick thing is a big deal only if you're Philly. It just, it's such a huge variable. Because, I mean, the difference between a, a, a first-round pick and a second-round pick in terms of value is huge, especially depending on where that pick is. Because if Indy is as good as they think they are, it's not going to matter whether it's a round one or a round two pick. If they win 11 games this year, they don't care, right? I mean, it's going to suck to lose a pick either way. So be it. Whatever. They don't care. It just opens you up. If you're Howie Roseman, this opens you up for such just crushing disappointment when he plays 68% of the snaps. Was he played by Ballard? No. I think it benefits both sides, right? Because the thing is, if the Colts are terrible, right? Like, let's say they're absolutely awful. They're in the top five of the draft this year, right? Howie would have wanted their round one pick, but they never would have given it to him as an option. And that's assuming probably Carson's going to play less than 70% if they're in the top five, if they're drafting in the top five, right? Okay, I understand that. The Eagles are going to get their top of round two pick, which is pretty much the bottom of round one pick. The flip side of it is if Carson plays his snaps and they're very good, oh, right. their end of round one pick is essentially going to be a round two pick anyway. And granted, it's going to be, you know, whatever. So they're happy to give it up. So the, the, the pick range is really within 20 slots. Right. That's my assumption, right? Yes. You're yes. Okay. I get it. So it's, it's not as much of a, a deal as anybody thinks it is. The worst case scenario for Indy is Carson Wentz has a repeat of 2020 plays over 70% of the snaps and they're terrible. If that happens, then Indy's in big trouble. Oh, they're pulling him. They're, they're pulling. They won't let that happen. I mean, it's going to be probably within 25, 30 slots of there anyway. It's not going to make that big a difference. I got to admit, I'm predisposed to think that the things that Howie Roseman does are doomed to fail, like his wide receivers, <laughs> and that everything that Ballard does turns to gold. He's carrying over $30 million from 2020 to 2021. I mean, am I right in thinking that Chris Ballard is one of the top GMs in the sport? Oh, yeah. He's very well respected around the league, right? Ever since he took the job, um, I think he also he likely knew there was a higher injury risk for Carson than there w- there was for other people, right? I think they got a little bit of a discount on bringing in Wentz for that exact reason. Um, if he ends up kind of being like a B level starter, you know, like a top twelve to fifteen quarterback in the league, then value wise, contract wise, what they gave up, I think they did well there. What What do you think that Chris Ballard's best quality is? I think his best attribute is that he understands football's market, right? Everything has a buy price and a sell price, like we talked about last time um, when we're talking about GMs making calls all the time. Ballard's one of those guys that knows everybody's price tag. Um, And if you go back a year, right, Phillip Rivers represents a really solid example of that. You're in a pandemic season. You don't have a quarterback. You probably want a veteran, right? There wasn't a quarterback on the market that's going to take you to new heights, so to speak. But he found value in someone that everybody else kind of forgot about, right? You know, everybody kind of left Philip Rivers for dead, and he had a really solid season for them, right? And I think he might be the best GM in the league in terms of getting value out of their dollars, right? Out of their 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 cap, out of their actual contract money, out of their draft capital. He might be the best in the league in terms of capital spent per win. Right, because they were competitive last year, and yet they were $30 million under the cap, and they carried all that over into this year. Yep. How far under are they this year? I'm guessing they didn't spend a whole lot more of it. That $30 million that they ate, um, that they carried over, is likely going to be Carson Wentz's contract. Right. If they extended Buckner, then that may take a chunk of it. But 
other than that, I mean, most of the roster is kind of either secure or young and on rookie deals. So they're set up for success to roll over even more money into 2022, 2023. Yep. This guy has created a golden loom of picks and salary cap space that he can roll over. Yeah, and if Wentz hits, if Carson Wentz hits, everybody watching or everybody listening to this, do me a favor. Go look at spot track over the cap, whatever you want to use to look at, at Carson Wentz's contract. Assume that there's a cap spike in twenty at the end of 2022. Look at the value that he represents for the next three years. Because here's the thing. He's always going to have to take a discount. He's never going to be paid like a top five quarterback again. It's super unlikely. It's very, very unlikely that Carson Wentz gets that kind of money again. So if he is a B, B-plus starter in the NFL, this is a home run for Chris Ballard because he paid he didn't he didn't have to draft him he didn't have to develop him the only thing that he had to do was try to get him back to his 2017 2018 2019 self and we'll find out really really quickly if 2020 was an aberration or if he's 2020 Carson Wentz is who he is right because if anybody's going to get it out of him it's Frank Reich and I think Ballard sees kind of the moving parts to the equation much better than other GMs do, if only because he's got Frank in his ear saying, hey, man, Carson was going to win MVP when I had him. Maybe he still got it. Maybe Doug Peterson lost the magic touch. Maybe everything blew up in Philadelphia. I mean, we don't get to see the insides and know. Yeah, his, his offensive line crumbled. He had no receivers. Right. And, I mean, he dragged that team in 2019. I think people forget about that. He battered and beaten. The Philadelphia decimated. I mean, absolutely decimated. He carried them to the playoffs. Like, what more do you want from your quarterback? God, look at you. You're a Carson Wentz stan. I just cheer for guys who everybody has kind of given up on. I love that. He had one bad year. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. It was awful. It was awful. It was hard to watch, right? Can he unlearn all those bad habits? Yeah, I think he can. And I think that... Also, getting out of Philadelphia. Maybe he just needed a change of scenery. Sometimes it happens to guys. I mean, how long did it take Tannehill post-Gase to become Ryan Tannehill? Some guys, it just get them out of one place and into another, and the switch flips immediately. It, it just it just kind of depends on who the guy is and, and how they're wired. And I think Carson kind of fits what you want a modern co- quarterback to be. He's big, he's tall, he's strong, athletic, big arm. And, I mean, the guy is tough. Say what you want about him. Say what you want about him, especially when he got in his feelings last year and, and you know kind of sulked on the sidelines. I get all of that. I understand that that's not what you want from your guy. But it's hard when, when, you, when you had to watch your backup quarterback come in and win the Super Bowl that seemed to be your right, your right of passage, right? Because we're talking about this very, very differently if he wins in 2017 and if he wins in 2018 because there's a strong argument to be made with Carson Wentz. They win both of those. If that happens, we're not even having this discussion because they would never have moved him. And that's where the business of football is so fickle because there's a lot of narrative that surrounds somebody immediately. Somebody has a bad game. Ooh, well, we don't like that. Somebody has a bad season. Oh, well, what's their value going forward? I think he's, what is he, 26 or 27 years old? He still has the arm talent. I mean, it's not like his arm fell off. There's, there's a lot of bad mechanical stuff that you got to fix, but it's from playing hero ball, Matt. And if you want a perfect example of what happens when you mess with someone's O-line over and over and over again, and finally they just can't handle it, watch Patrick Mahomes regress to his college self at Texas Tech 
chucking the ball all over the yard in the Super Bowl. That man went full superhero, and even he couldn't save him, right? So you're asking Carson Wentz to do the impossible, and he wasn't even given one-tenth of the pieces that Mahomes had in the Super Bowl. So, I mean, I don't know what you wanted the guy to do. Was he bad last year? Yes. Yes, he was terrible. He was arguably the worst quarterback in the league last year. He was one of the best one year before. He was one of the best two years before. He was one of the best three years before. So which data point are you going to trust? Three years of this, three or four years of this guy being one of the best quarterbacks in the league, one really, really bad year where his O-line was terrible and he had no weapons. I question the decision-making there in terms of, I get why Philly felt that they had to move him. That makes sense. What I don't understand is why people still are like, oh, there's there's no way to fix him. He's broken. Yeah, he looked broken last year. Pretty much any quarterback in the NFL would have looked broken last year behind that line. Would they have looked as bad? No. Right. No. That I'm not arguing. I'm just saying, if we're going to take the absolute peaks of Carson Wentz and the absolute valley, I think it's more likely that Carson Wentz, like who he is as a quarterback, is that absolute peak than that absolute valley. He still has the same arm talent. They're paying Josh Allen... million for that arm. And Carson Wentz has a similar arm, not as powerful. Like, he doesn't have, like, he's one level down, you know, in terms of the uh, pure firepower of of what he has. But the case was the same, that he wasn't super accurate or efficient in college, but you're, you're drafting Wentz at two for all those tools. You were drafting Josh Allen at six or seven for all those tools. I mean, I just, I don't understand the narratives, right? People are trying too hard to find narratives where they don't exist. Well, and the other thing too, is if I told you as a general manager, hey, you can have 90% of Josh Allen for 50% of the price. I think most people would take that. Well, and the other thing, too, is if I told you as a general manager, hey, you could have 90% of Josh Allen for 50% of the price, I think most people would take that. I'm a huge Ballard fan, and when I think about how long it takes to get good at the job of being a general manager, it makes the previous hire of Ryan Grigson at his age all the more egregious, as if you thought a guy that young could do that job well. Silly. Grigson was an abomination. I mean, there are, there have been some bad general managers in the league, but woo! Yeah, I think that that one kind of sticks out as the this is the worst of the worst. Oh, Grigson! Yeah, the difference between Grigson to Ballard—it's just it's that's as wide as you're gonna get of a difference. Can you imagine if if Chris Ballard had gifted Andrew Luck in his first year? Oh my God! Oh, Greg, <laughs> Grigson just had this the luck, luck. Yeah, yeah, we'd probably be talking about Indy the way that we talk about Kansas City when it's not will they win one, but how many? I feel a little bit bad. Like I gotta, I gotta retire this whole rugs thing because it's like enough already. You know, I feel bad constantly bringing it up, but Jesus, dude, I mean, it's I, there's a lot you can learn from that shit. 
I think we got into a really good spot um, when we were kind of talking about how, you know, the end result doesn't actually impact the the quality of the decision making, right? Because if, if everything was based on end results, then we would all draft quarterbacks at the end of round six because we're looking for Tom Brady. Even if you happen to stumble into something like that, eventually you're going to have to pay him anyway. So, you know, enjoy your discount for three or four years. So be it. I mean, the Seahawks did with Russell Wilson. They got their one title, and look where we are now. The Legion of Boom is given a lot of credit for what they did, but they did blow a couple leads. Oh, yeah, they did. Once in the playoffs in Russell Wilson's rookie year, and then, of course, <laughs> the infamous Tom Brady comeback. I mean, it. yes, it was lucky, but I mean, still, they did technically, technically, the defense did let Russell Wilson down. I have a hot take about about that Super Bowl. I think that comeback was more impressive than the one they made against Atlanta. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a lot more captivating of a game. Oh, for sure. Because I was watching both as a Patriots fan. I was on my knees when that Seattle fourth quarter happened. I was on my knees. I was so enthralled with what was happening on both sides, like, Jermaine Curse is kicking this ball up into the air three or four times with his knees and his ankles and his feet. He's playing hacky sack. He's finally coming down with it on his back. Yep. How the hell did that happen? Like, there's just so many plays where you're just like, how? How is this happening? Whereas the Falcons game, you had that catch, which was also how the fuck. That was Jermaine Curse level what the fuck. But it, for some reason, something about it wasn't as oh shit as that Seahawks comeback. It was I don't know I can't explain it. As soon as they scored, as soon as they were down twenty eight three, that first Brady touchdown, I turned down. I turned to a buddy of mine. And I was like, at that point, I wasn't working for the league, and I bet I live bet that immediately. I was like, there's no way they're not winning this game. Yep. I was like, there's no way they're not winning this game. Atlanta's they found the tell, and it was James White isolated on the backer, and they just killed him with it all game long. And I was like, Dan Quinn, adjust or die, and you're choosing to die. And by the way, I, I don't want this to be forgotten. Julio Jones won that game with the most ridiculous catch I have ever seen. That was absurd. Incredible. There's not a there's not a receiver dead or alive that makes that. Maybe Megatron. That's about it. Right. I mean, it, it, was, it was obscene. And then Matt Ryan getting sacked. God. That's the kind of thing, right? That's kind of that... that that Matt Ryan, I mean, I think Matt Ryan's significantly better than Garoppolo. But it's like when you get in that situation, you can't make that play. That's That Super Bowl was when I knew Jared Goff wasn't the guy. I mean, he could win, but he wasn't the guy. That was Bill Belichick's best job as a coach. Oh, I agree. I agree. Kronk was a shell of himself. What happened was McVay thought that he could out-execute 11 personnel instead of adjusting to what they were doing. And... Belichick went in there with a completely open mind, thinking about ways to adjust both the defense and the offense to thwart the Rams' strengths and exploit their weaknesses. And that didn't seem to be McVay's mindset going in. McVay's mindset seemed to be, we're going to do what we do at a high level, and that's just going to be enough without adjustments. Right. That's the principle of the air raid, right? You're going to run five passing plays. We're just going to execute them better than you than you execute your defense. And I think he fell a little bit of a victim to that because it, it becomes a mentality, right? As you spend time around the air raid, those coaches wholeheartedly believe that. And don't be wrong. It works at every level of football as you kind of scale it up and, and do what you do. I think the problem that he fell more victim to is you got there running the ball. You got there running the ball. 
If Todd Gurley's knees were going to snap out of his body, I think he would have been okay running the ball 45 times in that game. Like, you go back and look at the box score of that game and you just wonder what the hell was going on. Because either they were straight up lying to us about how bad his knees were, which is what I think the case was. But if his knees are that bad, why is he out there? Either give CJ all the carries or give Gurley all the carries. Why is Jared Goff dropping back to do anything? I mean, you're playing Belichick and Patricia at that point, I think, right? Oh, my God. What were they thinking? That was a beautiful game to watch as a fan of defense, but I could understand why everybody hated it. And defensive game planning and... Oh, my God. Adjustment, execution. I mean, that was coaching. That was coaching. I didn't put as much stock in in coaches as others do, but I became a believer in Belichick after that game. That one, and then uh, Wade Phillips in that game, too. I mean... God, New England was. What did they beat the Chiefs 38 31? And then he came in there and held them to what? Three through three and a half quarters? Like, man, I mean, Wade Phillips did everything short of tackling Brady with Aaron Donald as a shield himself that he could have done to win that game. I just. Great defensive game planning on display in that game. As a Rams fan, the first one sucks. The first one sucks because there's an argument to be made that that was the greatest team ever. Um, and obviously, the people are going to go to the 85 Bears, the 07 Patriots. There's, there's a lot of teams. But in terms of yardage gap allowed versus gained, that, that team had more than anybody else. And I think it's, it was clear by a wide margin. And, man, it, it, it took them too long to figure it out. And then rookie Tom, man. I remember, because I remember as a kid, I remember watching the broadcast. And I can't remember who was on the call, but I remember hearing... Well, they've got a first-year starter in Brady in 48 seconds. There's no way in hell they're going to let him throw the ball. This is just going to be a kneel down, and we're going to have our first overtime Super Bowl ever. And I just remember laughing at the end of that game. Like, I mean, I'm not even mad, dude. Look at <laughs> who's he throwing to, Isaac Redman? Like, <laughs> like, Isaac Redman? You got Joe Andrews doing snow angels in the end zone? I mean, man, I, I, I couldn't even be mad. That, that one was just... It hurts my soul because I think that was the best Rams team we've ever had. It was one of the greatest teams ever. Sometimes it happens, right? Sometimes one of the greatest teams of all time doesn't win the Super Bowl. Yeah. The 2010 Chargers. I don't know if you've ever done any taking on them. There's a really good um, chart party that John Boyce does on, on exactly that. They had the best offense in the league and the best defense in the league and missed the playoffs because their special teams were that bad. <laughs> Crazy. I saw the video yesterday. That was hilarious. I was dying about the uh, about the whole shares thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought you would. I thought you would approve of that. Just this, the way that fantasy analysts talk. It's like they were just leaving an econometrics class. <laughs> it's so true, though. Yeah, it's like guys, like this is not this is not high level econ. This is not, you know, Goldman Sachs <laughs> level case study work we're doing. Ease off on the uh, the econ PhD lexicon. Okay, this is sports. Oh yeah. If you're talking about how much of a particular player you have drafted across all your leagues and you want to call it your exposure to that player, like that makes logical sense to me. Yeah. That's a word that yeah, makes yeah. logical sense in that particular case. But if you want to call the share of a player's yardage in a passing game his market share, 
That doesn't make any fucking sense. You're just using a financial term. Yeah. Because you think it sounds smart when it actually sounds stupid. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Target share makes a lot of sense. It's a share of something. That makes sense. When you start right. adding these financial jargon for no reason other than to make yourself sound smart, that's my issue. So if I had to boil it down right. to why right, right, right. do I object to this, it's the inflating of one's ego right. by inserting complex financial terms into a hobby that really doesn't need this much complexity added. Right. And the idea that you have shares of these players... Like, I understand, but if you use that term, then to me, it reveals that you don't know what share means. Sure. I mean, I think to an extent, I think it's kind of become one of those things. Like, um, when we initially started talking about memes, like that word had a completely different meaning. And I think people started using it so much that the assumed meaning took over the real meaning. And I think with when it comes to shares, quote unquote, I think that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah. So many people are using the word share that that it, like the original meaning of the world is completely lost. But even though we know what you're talking about, right? I, I think in that sense, it's useful to an extent. Um, I don't know if there's a better word out there than share. The whole market share thing, though, I completely agree with you. I think that's ridiculous. Calling it market share is absurd. Here's the thing on that. I could have done that. I could have uh, lamented market share, but that wouldn't have landed with so many people and gotten so much engagement and frustrated so many people that use the term because it's not nearly as widespread. Yeah. But this whole idea of calling players shares, everybody does it now. So there's going to be a lot of people that that triggers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was the point. Nobody's happy and looking for content. Yeah, we're trying to create content here, guys. It's a, it's a fucking slog. It's 365 days a year. I have to do a TikTok video. How do we create controversy? <laughs> I have a book called Controversy Creates Cash by Eric Bischoff, the former head of the WCW. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's got to be a great read. It's a great read. It's, a gr it's, it's, it's my Bible. It's Controversy Creates Cash. It, 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 I just want to make you feel, man. I just want to make you feel. Yeah. I just want to make you feel something. I want you to feel alive. I want you to feel invigorated. I want you to feel pissed off. I want you to feel exhilarated. You know, we're going to celebrate players. We're going to make you laugh. We're going to make you cry. You're going to be mad at us. Yeah, we're going to inspire anger. Yeah, yeah. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hit those buttons, baby. Why not? We're creating engagement. <laughs> Why not? I love it. I love it. So, yeah, I, you know, I could see people in the comments getting mad. They're like, well, what's a better term then? And it's like, I don't have a better term. I'm just fucking triggering you. Look at you commenting, giving me more engagement, improving the score of my TikTok. The, the real question is, why are you so mad about it? The algorithm is, thinks this is now a better TikTok because you're mad. I mean, I don't think people realize that in the world we live in, any engagement is good. I was never drafted. I'm going to show this league what I can do. Okay, so he might actually become a good head coach someday then. <laughs> oh, man. That's brutal. That's brutal. Fair shot, though. I can't argue with that one. What is the general manager doing? Is he just providing tech support? Oh, my God. This guy is a potbelly, too. Absolute unit. Absolute unit. Elite beer chugger, too, I'm sure. It's tiny. It looks so small in his hand. That's how complicated the job is. Jerry Jones has to turn 70 before he can finally get good at it. 
I'm sure they love Najee Harris. I don't think they were going to take him. He has a lot of guys. John Elway, what are you doing? God, look at you. You're a Carson Wentz stan. I mean, it's not like his arm fell off. Keep those fingers crossed, Howie. There's no reason to be alarmed. It was scheme fit need. Scheme fit need. Scheme fit need. I just remember laughing at the end of that game. Like, I mean, I'm not even mad, dude. Look at who's he throwing to? Isaac Redman? Like, <laughs> what did Jalen Ramsey win Jacksonville? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, they're good players. Yes, they're good. Yes, fine. Elite beer chugger, too, I'm sure. What were they doing getting rid of Sammy Watkins? That was crazy. Just for fun, here's another toy, right? Which shouldn't even be allowed. That shit should be illegal. It's stuff like that where you're just like, guys. In the bowels of the catacombs, I have the torch. I know my way around. I'm not going to lead you astray. I promise on him. I mean, it's not like his arm fell off. Okay, so he might actually become a good head coach someday then. <laughs> oh, man. That's brutal. That's brutal. Fair shot, though. Elite beer chugger, too, I'm sure.